This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello and welcome to the Orphan Black episode. My name is Seth Dare. And my name is also Seth Dare. Liar. Just kidding. Uh, so my name is Jillian. Well, I just screwed up my own name because I didn't give my real name. I'll fix it. That's right. We're talking partially about identity today. That's true. None of y'all know me as Jillian. So I am JJ Janflown, and this is Speaker for the Living. This is our special pop culture edition. We'll be focusing in particular on the fantastic series Orphan Black that has regrettably come to an end. Which most of you have probably never heard of, unless you came specifically to listen to this episode because we have Orphan Black in the title. In, in the, that case, welcome, Clone Club. Welcome. I feel like there's a lot... Uh, Orphan Black has a surprisingly large sort of secret hidden fan base that is also interested in social justice and academic and science issues. So I could see people, you know, there could be some overlap in our listenership. Do you know and a as, few Corbellers who listen to it? Uh, Corbell that's true. University. That's true. And and as a human trafficking supporter, I am just happy that <laughs> we're getting to talk about... Um, Did you say this, human trafficking supporter? Well, anti-human trafficking. Okay. Just, just wanted to make or, sure. Just wanted to clarify, you know, I might have switched sides. Who knows? So much intrigue. But no, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk about this. We've been trying to do this podcast for a while, but Seth very kindly was waiting for me to to finally catch up and finish the series. I am not someone who watches things as they happen. I tend to wait for the entire season to end and then I binge all at once. So he was he was very kind to to let me wait until I finally caught up. So this will be talking about things that happen throughout um, the entirety of the series. So there will be spoilers. Yes. Here. We're well, talking about major themes. So Right. We won't be focusing on themes. We will also talk some about the technicalities since this involves cloning, human cloning. We'll try to not give away any more of the story than we have to, especially mm-hmm. toward the end. Yeah, it, it's a show that uh, we can probably give the reasons we like it. But, but before that, just to uh, reiterate why we sometimes want to talk about pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, it's something a lot of people engage in. Uh, something like this, which is more speculative fiction and science fiction, and uh, as well as <laughs> some other things within Orphan Black. That it's a way to explore themes and explore where will science go? And where, like, where might things go? And what are some of the human rights and, in this case, like slavery trafficking related issues we might have to deal with with in the future? But also, how does some of it reflect on today? And also, too, I think one of the things that's just to point out that not just things in the future, but how, in particular, the issue of cloning. Seth and I seem a little bit obsessed with clones. We've done a previous uh, pop culture podcast on cloning, but just sort of this idea of where is the history of this too, within the human trafficking or human rights field in particular, maybe not necessarily out and out cloning, but this idea of bodily autonomy and who owns rights to your genes. This is not actually a new thing. So we'll talk about that in, in a bit. And I think that sort of this idea of where, does medical science and and human trafficking or exploitative labor, where do these things overlap? Mm-hmm. But uh, this show, aside from me liking speculative fiction, it just crosses so many different areas. It, oh, yeah. And it has a lot of Easter eggs relating to, like, 1984, Brave New World. And the amount of themes, the amount of deep themes woven in, while still being a character-based show where you start to care about the characters the one thing everyone agrees with that i've seen on reviews is the acting of tatiana maslani is awesome and that that's great because she plays like half the characters in the show at that clones and she doesn't just play them as oh here's these different people like not only do they look different but they have different accents different mannerisms 
so they have different personalities. And the fact that she's able to pull that off is something that has that she's gotten a lot of acclaim for and which uh, it's just amazing to watch. And without her being the glue for the show, it wouldn't happen. But the supporting cast is also awesome. Yeah, well, actually, one of the reasons why I started watching Orphan Black is I came to it pretty late. I came to it... Um, in its second season is I, I had read a lot of buzz on sort of different like feminist blogs or sort of gender focused blogs that it, it's portrayal, not just of main characters, but side characters was fantastic that it was talking about sort of bioethics in a, in a really interesting way. And also just the story was good. But then I saw a little behind the scenes sort of YouTube clip and I discovered that um, when she's acting against herself it's it's her literally with a tennis ball and there are, are full not just like conversations but episodes where it, it's literally just basically her playing this multitude of different characters all at once and when you realize that she's an actor who's emoting to herself <laughs> to a tennis ball it's just it's crazy impressive so that she hasn't sort of won all of the awards is is a surprise to me and i think probably has to do something with the fact that sci-fi shows for the most part don't tend to really get mainstream recognition still uh, beyond sort of their special effects. It, it's rare still for, for a sci-fi story to, to get sort of mainstream recognition. And then also too, I think uh, just because of the platform that it's on, you know, and not being an HBO special sort of thing. So the show does a very slow reveal like all through five seasons. Mm -hmm. So some of what we're going to be talking about was revealed across those seasons. And again, it's the more technical parts because it really helps you understand some of the aspects, especially uh -huh. with cloning. But it, uh, the main character is uh, Tatiana's portrayal of Sarah Manning, who has a child and uh, most of the clones are not fertile. So sh she's... Mm -hmm. And that she sees another clone who, or somebody who looks like her, at the, and she doesn't know it's a clone. It's she, Beth, who commits suicide walking in front of a train, and then Sarah takes over her identity, and it all blows up from there over five seasons. And you get slowly revealed to more and more clones, the so-called clone club. Some clones are friendly, some clones are not. Some react differently to finding out that they're clones. So I'll go ahead and start over some of the uh, details here. So there is an organization, there are multiple organizations, but uh, one of them is focusing on furthering the betterment of mankind's evolution. It is called Neolution. And there were these doctors, the Duncans, who started experiments with cloning, and uh, Neolution got involved, and uh, there, there were these two programs. One of them was male, focused on the military, called Project Caster. The other was focused on females, and it was called Project Dyad. And you have the same clone DNA in, in both of them, one male, one female. So the Duncans had some reservations about Neolution, and uh, on the down low, they had uh, clones produced who were not the normal clones. So there was genetic in engineering done by Neolution that made the clones infertile, but uh, the ones that ended up being Sarah and Helena, and they were fertile, which uh, also gave them a different value in the genetic equation and if that sounds a little technical it's because that's the way it kind of gets in the show is what mm -hmm. what is somebody's value and um and fertility yeah. is described actually when the determination of who or sort of what clones are going to be fertile or which ones are going to be infertile um both male and female is described i believe as a design feature at one point that it it's intentional that they're infertile for a variety of reasons that it was intentional that they were the ones that were able to to reproduce but in a way so that's actually not too different from when we're talking about sort of traditional uh chattel style slavery where who can reproduce and who's not is controlled by a master for the sake of 
basically for, for the sake of creating a, a breeding stock or to control the population, as the case may be. So that was kind of one of the first things I saw in Orphan Black where I went, oh, there are some like direct parallels here, particularly in regards to controlling women's fertility. So the Sarah and Helena were ended up given to a uh, birth mother in vitro named Amelia. After the in vitro, the DNA, these uh, embryos, mm-hmm. they're placed in birth mothers uh, via because w- women who want to have children. And, and, and then in some cases, there's others where uh, they're put in surrogates without their knowledge of what's going on. So you have all of these women who want to be surrogates or want to have children who, without their knowledge, are part of this big experiment hundreds of women so there's a lot that's disturbing about that as well and then on top of that the clones by and large with hardly (laughs) one notable exception are not aware that they're clones and it's designed so that they never will be aware that they're clones and then they have monitors assigned to them who might be friends or acquaintances who may not have good motives. Maybe they just want the money. But in other cases, it might be a relative, a friend, a co-worker who is told a lie and has the best of intentions to take care of them. And uh, there's an example of that too. And the monitors are also unaware of the real reasons why they're observing the subject. So it's a double-blind experiment with lies all around. And these... These women being observed, being experimented on, like for medically to, and, and with it focused on uh, curing a disease that that uh, most of them are coming up with uh, symptoms of, which would which causes violent fits of coughing up blood and weakness, and they eventually die. Kind of reminds me of TB, but it's probably something else. Well, and that I think, you know, this is not a particular. This, this podcast this week is, as we've mentioned in the one from last week, is not going to be a things in the news sort of white supremacy one. But another thing that this reminds me of, of deeply is something that has been in the news. People are wanting to take down the statue of J. Marion Sims, who's known as the, the father of like a modern gynecology or American gynecology, who purchased black female slaves for the purpose of basically doing medical experiments on them. And one of the things that he claimed was, is that one, that black women didn't feel pain. So he didn't have to use any anesthetic and more to the point, it didn't matter if they passed away because he had paid for them these were these were his property to practice on and so when you get into sort of the medical ethics of using people to further a medical cause that's not going to benefit them as you also see sort of with the tuskegee airmen experiment um particularly again as it's not if it's going to relate to sort of their physical health and surrounding help that's a lot of parallels of things that have happened in the past and the Nazis are famous for their oh, medical yeah. experiments, which sadly also, well, well it, it produced some a- useful results that were helpful for the medical establishment, but were, were horrifically done. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the problem that we run into. Um, that's why medical ethics are, I think that's why medical ethics are still something that's debated, because what what is appropriate treatment because you know here in the u.s and just in the wider sort of western medical community we took things that the nazis did and what uh the japanese unit 731 did and used those things to make medical advancements but i think the difference there is that it's always been with the acknowledgement that this information was obtained unethically and at great human cost of life and that these experiments cannot be replicated because of what it would do to human beings Mm -hmm. uh I just think it's so interesting with Orphan Black because what you what we have is we don't have a historical case of this happening. We have it happening in modernity to the point where there's even in vitro fertilization of, of characters against their will. And 
you know, the taking of stem cells and things like that. And it's because these clones were created to serve a medical purpose or in the case of, of the male clones for, for kind of super soldiers end quote. But like, if, if you're going to have them be created for the purpose of serving other human beings as medical fodder, that's slavery too. Right. And there are other forms of trafficking. We will talk about at some point, like organ trafficking, would be a variation and uh, things like that. So a few notable moments in cloning, in reality. In the 90s, in 1996, we had Dolly, the first cloned mammal, which was a sheep. In 97, they cloned two primates. They were rhesus monkeys named Ditto and Nettie. In 1997, the team that uh, created Dolly then brought us Polly, another sheep. But uh, in that case, they genetically engineered the sheep so that the milk had therapeutic properties. It uh, was engineered to reduce blood clots. So that's partially relevant to the fact that we had clones in Orphan Black who had their DNA altered. And then uh, in 2007, we had a... uh, Advanced primate, another rhesus monkey that was created using adult cells, and the resulting cells were embryonic stem cells. I only understand the basics of that, but it's more to the point. This is some of the things that have happened in reality. Based on what I know, there have been no successful human cloning experiments, and I don't know if there have been off-book experiments for human cloning. Mm-hmm. So that's reality. So then... Now that we've talked about creating clones, the first big question we're going to look at is, are clones property? Or specifically here, can a corporation own a clone? And a central theme of Orphan Black is that humans can't be owned. So Kasima, who is a clone and a scientist. And my favorite. (laughs) She says, quote, at one point, We're property. Our bodies, our biology, everything we are, everything we become belongs to them. And she said it with a lot of angst. So before going further down that lane, uh, what are your initial thoughts, JJ? Well, this is sort of the main thing, right? What you have is you have individuals who... These corporations that created them or these entities that created them saying hey, guess what? We own you. And then individuals saying, no, 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 you don't. I don't belong to you. And then the corporations turning back very, very quickly and saying, no, we do own you. We own the rights to you. We have the patent on you and as such you belong to us legally you are ours and then orphan black kind of what i think does a really good job is explains not just what that does to a human being to be told that you're owned or what it's like to struggle against this massive entity that says you're owned but what to do when you exist in this legally murky place i mean obviously because it's it's cloning it's not as upfront it's it's a little bit harder to kind of maybe go to your local police station but what do you do when there are these like really en- these entities that are much bigger much stronger than you that say you belong to us well, and we're highly indebted to a book called Orphan Black and Philosophy which uh, had some really good chapters one of those chapters it's a collection was written by Rod Carbeth and it's called Who Owns Clones And he says at one point, a person who is considered property is really a slave. And I read that and like, technically it's true. If you're property, you're you're a chattel slave. But then it's, what is the difference in the amount of leeway or freedom that that slave is given? Because in one way, these clones have... a lot of life they can live, but ultimately, as uh, we see with uh, something with uh, what happened in Helsinki, 
that that's all I'm going to say about that. What happened in Helsinki? You have to watch the show. <laughs> is uh, if you uh, decide to not follow the program, it can turn out very poorly for you. Well, and again, to do sort of a parallel, one of the things that that immediately drew to my mind when we started to talk, well, or when in in the show there started to be sort of direct conversations about the science and who owned the rights to what and, and what sort of unlocking the sort of genetic material or genetic, I believe it's, it's described a lot as the possibilities of, of the clones was the book, um, not the terrible movie, but the book, uh, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which details about, it's the true story of, a poor black tobacco farmer um, who in 1951 had her cells taken. Um, and then those cells became the HeLa cells, Henry Relax. And those are the, the base cells that are used in almost all, um, sci- all human-based science. So her cells are the ones that are used for the polio vaccine and other vaccines uh, used in cloning and gene mapping. They're used for inverter fertilization. HeLa is basically the the base cells that are used in all these um, in all of this medical work. And yet, Henrietta Lacks was never paid for this. Her family was never paid. And actually, the book details how it was never actually made clear to her family until the author took the time to do it. What the HeLa cells actually were. They were led to believe that it was kind of a part of Henrietta that had been kept sort of alive or kept functioning that, that people kept returning to, to do experiments on, not that it was copies of her cells that had been made clones of her cells. And that's a, that's a debate now is that ethically can scientists continue using HeLa cells since they didn't have permission from her or now from her descendants who owns the rights really to these Hela cells. You know, did she own the rights to her cells? <laughs> who who determines that that right, and who determines who profits from the continued work on those cells? And we'll get into the the law as uh, presented in that chapter in a second here. So, in the case of Orphan Black, they modified the DNA sequence and encrypted a message into their nucleotides. And they have a number within that can be read through a, mic- you know, a very strong microscope. Uh-huh. I don't know how if that's possible, but that's part of the show. I don't think it is, but it is sort of the idea of, of slave branding, right? Or tattoo branding. Right, to be, yeah. That For you're ownership ser- and to tell apart. Yeah, that you have a serial number. Right. So if you drew blood, then you could see, oh, this is this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, one of the message in, or the message in the nucleotides is this organism and derivative genetic material is restricted intellectual property. Ah, that wording. Yeah. Your property. So it appears that uh, 20% of the human genome has been protected under U.S. patents, according to the previously mentioned. Uh, broad carpet, but that uh, with the Human Genome Project, that uh, there's like twenty thousand plus genes that are now in the public domain, mm-hmm. and so in order to have a patent, it has to have a you have to specify a new use. I don't fully understand that, but uh, bear with me. So in uh, June two thousand thirteen, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court made a decision on whether uh, human genes could be patented and uh, just for discovery it wasn't enough and so they ruled that but the judges did say that while the naturally occurring isolated biological material itself is not patentable a synthetic version of the gene material may be patented so you have to make a change Uh, I'll I'll read directly from him since he explains it better than I would. The court also wrote, however, that the creation of products through the manipulation of a gene could be legal. Thus, just the position that DNA itself is not patentable, but the complementary DNA or cDNA can be. 
Complementary DNA is artificially synthesized from the genetic template and engineered to produce gene clones. Use of this protein-isolating procedure, known as tagging, is especially important in mapping and cataloging the vast human genome. Now, in reality, you know, what can law cover and uh, what, you know, human rights sometimes has to catch up, like we're still catching up to the internet, we're still trying to figure out, okay, there's going to be this internet of things, you know, how do we deal with uh, all the various types of abuse that happen over the internet, like law enforcement and human rights don't always catch up to technology fast enough. But it's things like this which leave it open for scenarios like Orphan Black, which operates under the radar. So it's it's that gray area where it's not strictly legal, but they may have some cover if they don't get exposed. Exactly. And I think what you had mentioned before Seth, with the, with the new use, it's that it's not all that different from regular patent law. So it's not that you can't use, say, like a zipper that's been created by someone else. It's that you can't have, say, like a zipper on a pair of blue jeans. It has to be a zipper in a new direction or a zipper used for a new task. So a zipper, but with different style teeth, that sort of thing. So could clones be owned, especially if an organization is a shadow organization and has money and is able to pay selective people off and isn't able to get the scrutiny so that laws could be passed to keep it from happening? Maybe, but that's part of the premise of the show. Say that in the show that did happen and because it's something where it would be hard to prove and where you need to get evidence and you have people hunting you down, which also brings up slavery, being hunted down. Could clones be property? And if they were property, what would be the implications? And then also, too, what is it that makes them property? Is it just enough for a corporation to use sort of a loophole in the law to say that they are indeed property? Or does there sort of be, need to be national consensus that they're property? Do they have to be recognized by society as peace part? Like, what what is it to actually be owned? Which is sort of something that I don't think we've talked about too, too much, because generally, when you and I are talking about it, we're either talking about, A, historical cases where it was legally acceptable, and as a result of the legal acceptability, was considered just a point of society, that there's this strong stratification between people who are property and people who are people, versus... When we're talking about things now where it's people operating in a very illegal sense. Human trafficking is still a crime, but it's happening kind of in plain sight. And we and we break it down that way. So what what does it say about Orphan Black that you have legalized property ownership? Again. But even the question of belonging and who has the final say, such as we have uh, you know, with people who are in a vegetative state or related the Charlie Guard situation where it was a debate, well, should the state come in at some point or or do the parents get final say? Is there a point where it's harmful to the child? And the question of who does the child belong to? Mm-hmm. And belong is one of those weird words. Yeah. And, and that's really all I want to just raising questions because I don't want to get into that debate. <laughs> But the related question then is, are clones human? Uh, The answer is that's hard. (laughs) And you might think they are without thinking about it. But then you have like the the former Pope Pius XII who objected Mm -hmm. to the practice of in vitro fertilization on the grounds that those who make use of it, quote, take the Lord's work into their own hands. This was a an issue around the time that The Handmaid's Tale was written, where in mm-hmm. vitro fertilization was frowned on. There are books like uh, Brave New World by Huxley, which uh, talked about artificial wombs, and uh, Aldous Leakey, one of the doctors in Orphan Black, was also working on an artificial womb, which is a nod to Brave New World. And it's what what is the beginning, and uh, to use Hannah Arendt's term, what is natality? Like what what is the beginning? And uh, 
And who and who sets who sets the perimeters? Is it the Catholic Church or is it other faith traditions? Mm-hmm. Is it again the historical precedent of well, these people have always been people, so they're not, or is it the individuals themselves? Can you self-determine? Yeah, and I also think of Gattaca with uh, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, which is one of my favorite movies, where in that society, uh, genes are everything, and the normal way is what would be abnormal today, very scientific process, and where one of the main characters at one point, um, the Uma Thurman's character said that his character was God-born. In other words, the former natural way. And there have been a number, too, um, of sort of science fiction, in particular I'm thinking of young adult books that have come out and in the last couple of years that have dealt with that. So one of the ones I'm thinking of in particular is Cinder, which is sort of this recreation of a girl as a cybertronic human being, where you have people who have been genetically created and then can be modified even further in sort of this limit of well, what does it mean then to be human? Can these people vote? Can they not? Do they count as people? So this is something that I think mankind has been dealing with for a very, very long time. What makes us human and, and what classifies us as inhuman? The problem with something or the problem that Orphan Black brings up is that this isn't an issue of what makes us human, period, in terms of experiencing things, because I think all of the clones would, for the most part, tell you that they are human. They feel things. They're real. They're not something that came out of a Petri dish. But it's whether they're recognized by the outside world as human or not that becomes the problem. Right. So the questions become, like, how much does your origin matter? Are natural born better than cloned? Are they abominations? Is bio- Are clones better than natural born? Yeah, that too. Is, bio- is your biology your destiny? And this is getting into the whole issue of post-humanism, which uh, can be seen in a, a number of sci-fi shows. Like, where, where does humanity go? How much do we have things unmoored from the, quote, naturalness? And... In terms of the beginnings, well, we already mentioned in vitro, and then there's surrogacy, there's fertility treatments. Like, is there a point where messing with humans and genes and everything becomes problematic or wrong or ungodly or or whatever, which are all good questions to ask, but we're kind of already there. Mm -hmm. And this is already a discussion, and... um, you know, whatever your position on um, transgenderism, when you have people who outright call somebody an abomination, which I've read, when we start getting into calling people abominations and using religious language to do that. Yeah, well, there's there's language like that used, one, in, in, in Orphan Black. You see that mm-hmm. in particular when characters are referencing sort of the, the upbringing they had in particular if they were raised by what seems like very violent oh, yeah. nuns, you know, sort of this creation of, of, of what are you, your, your, your blight on the planet, which ones, which makes you an appropriate clone, you know, is there a hierarchy of clones, that sort of thing. That's right, I know what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that language was there uh, with uh, all the others being abominations. Exactly, and that, and that the, being able to somehow reproduce is what makes you not a failure and then sort of the there there is in one particular season sort of this religious cult that's present and so what does that mean the proletians Um, yeah and sort of this what what does it mean then to can you can be human but also be a human that is fallen and so how we become unfallen is by living in a particular way but so what what i mean though is beyond that rhetoric is that that's rhetoric we're also hearing now with sort of anti-minority sentiment this idea that there is a hierarchy of people and people who don't classify as being in the top part of the hierarchy as determined by you know blank you know by whoever seems to be holding the weaponry at that particular moment or or the power because orphan black can get kind of bloody (laughs) sometimes so just you know who who's in control is setting the determination of who's an abomination and who's not. And this is something we see as justifications for slavery 
both in the past and up to modernity. These people are less than us, so we're doing them a favor by controlling them. Whether it's a religious justification, whether it's a justification based on biology, that these people are biologically or chemically inferior, so we need to provide for them. Or if it's just they're a non-human entity, so they don't count. This is no different than owning an animal. And you see all three of those justifications used in Orphan Black, actually, for people who want to gain either control of the clones or actually just want to remove the clones. They want to get rid of them. Well, let me show you another way that uh, dehumanizing language is dangerous, and I, I'm going to get briefly political. So, <laughs> so both Steve Bannon and Breitbart have referenced multiple times a book called Camp of the Saints, written by a Frenchman in the 70s, which is um, a book that is very racist. And when I say that, like, I don't use that term lightly. It's just mm -hmm. there's really no other term for it. And it literally shows refugees that coming into France as below savages who have no control of their impulses, who once they are let in by well-meaning people, bring down Western civilization. And Steve Bannon has likened the current migration and refugee crisis to Camp of the Saints, which makes me irate. So that tells you something about Steve Bannon, and um, I hope he enjoys not being in the White House, although I wish he wasn't anywhere. Oh, I, I don't wish... I don't wish him to be off the planet. I just don't want him to have Yeah, you don't, want him Ill, you don't want ill will. You just like want him to like move to a small island off the coast of Florida right. where he just like will yes. sit quietly and, without and an internet the connection. And yeah, uh, be happy the rest of his life. Retire out of the public eye. <laughs> but when you view refugees as less than human, when you view people who might be from different cultures that when you start viewing people like that, and it's not to say all the cultures are the same. They're not. It's not to say we all have the same values. But we're also all human. Like I, I've seen kids in Cambodia. I've seen kids in Uganda. And my biggest takeaway was that they're kids. Yeah, that's the from, – from the work that I've done with sort of migrant populations across um, East Asia, it's that – do you want to know what six-year-old kids are like everywhere? Exactly the same. They love rocket ships and horses, and they think fart jokes are the peak of comedy. And they love their parents. They This sort of otherness that comes into play that's assigned to them by adults happens far, far later in life. And ultimately, I you know people people are kind of all the same. You know, people need to eat. People need to sleep. People get really mm -hmm. upset if you don't give up your seat on the bus for a pregnant woman. There are some standards across the board. Well, it's nobody, even, it's, yeah. nobody likes people who eat on the bus. Well, it's the challenge, too, of uh, biology versus adoption. And mm -hmm. uh, do you have a real baby? And uh, other things that I've heard. And, you, you know, I know... It's, Parenthood is a lot of work and, you know, adoption, sometimes there, there are challenges and life has lots of challenges. Mm -hmm. But this is something that, I mean, that's, a, you know, to, to get personal for a moment, you know, I am female. I am Catholic. I have been married for over five years now. And I, one of the questions my husband and I do get a lot is when are we going to have children? And the reality is that that's just not an option for me physically kids are just not biological children are not going to happen for us and when I tell people that they I think one because they realize they've asked a very personal and basic question that I've answered with like I am a barren wasteland <laughs> do you want to ask me more but I think one one of the things that pops up a lot then is is people sort of immediately being very uncomfortable with like oh well I guess you're you're are, are you just gonna have to adopt then and it's like well that's not a huge hardship if you choose to adopt or if you choose not to have children or if you choose to have biological ch biological children or a mix thereof, you know, or you choose to be a foster parent or just provide respite care. It's, it's a very sort of weird thing about what we classify as, you know, to be a blood member of a family and why that matters now into modernity, which is quite funny to me, I think, because I think if anything, the rise of things like Ancestry and like 23 Ancestry.com and 23andMe have come is that like everybody, as it turns out, has some sort of unclaimed paternity 
<laughs> somewhere in their family line. Right. Uh, sometimes a white nationalist will find out they might have a little black blood. Yeah, can we link to that video? Because it's amazing <laughs> for everyone to watch. But it's but it's one of those things, too, where, you know, my, my entire life, I was told from my family that, you know, my dad's side is 100% Italian, that we might have had an Italian at some point, because they were fresh off the boat, sort of around the time of World War II, that there might have been someone who had a bit of a dalliance with a German at one point, but that the family was overwhelmingly... Uh, Italian on my dad's side and on my mom's side, half Italian, half Scots-Irish. Yeah, did the whole ancestry thing, came back. There's a lot of Native American just sort of hanging out, and weirdly enough, some Dutch. No idea how that got there. <laughs> no yeah. one in the family has an answer. I'm like 164th Native American. No, we actually have a substantial population, which is, you know, percentage, which is weird, because that means that, like, some grandparent somewhere... <laughs> was not either was very misled about their parentage or, or went on walkabouts shall we say but i come from an italian catholic family on that considered themselves italian catholic on both sides and had always lived in the same small town you know so this whole what actually makes you blood or not doesn't seem to be as important as what you're recognized as well and we you know we also had white nationalists in charlottesville who yeah. want Ethno-nationalism, you know, a separate area or state for white people, and uh, who were saying, you know, chanting things like "blood and soil," and you cannot replace, or you will not replace us. It's, you know, things like biology and things like blood. They factor into our conversations, and uh, and that's impacted by history yeah. and things that we had in. Particularly in the U.S. context, but also in other countries as well, things like the one-drop rule and sort of the designation about what makes you a particular ethnicity or nationality and what doesn't, uh, based largely on appearance, but also parentage. So not only what makes you human, but what makes you equally human, like equally of worth to other human beings. Yeah, what, what designates you as either more or less human than others? And do we have a categorization? And do people who make certain modifications become less human? Do they become abominations? Do they are they outside religion then? Um, you know what? And the, these type of things end up making not not just discrimination easier, but dehumanization, struggling in life, and they make trafficking easier. When people, because then people don't have as many resources, they don't have as many people who are going to look out for them, and less people that care. And, and less sort of presentation for the protection of oneself. You know, mm -hmm. we talk about this all the time here, but there is an immense privilege in knowing that if you contact the authorities or your government or, or someone in a position of power, that they will go to bat for you. Or that if they don't go to bat for you, that you have some sort of recourse. You have a multitude of options to go to. When that's taken away from you or when that's not present, you are at an incredible disadvantage. Nope. And a lot of times that's not mm -hmm. recognized the way it should be. Now, this also reminded me of Orlando Patterson. I really love his book on slavery and social death. Mm -hmm. And uh, he brings up the concept of natal alienation when he's talking about slavery, especially chattel slavery, mm -hmm. where a person does not have a right to their past or their culture. They might be given a sliver of it, but uh, enslaved persons in the United States, they managed to have families and stuff, but legally it wasn't something they had to be given. And their heritage, like even the fact that we lump slaves all together, even though they're from various countries. Well, and I think that's sort of the thing that pops up in the Black Lives Matter movement that people in the U.S. have responded with, well, then I'm allowed to have a white pride movement because if the blacks can have it, I can have it. Which is sort of this fundamental misunderstanding, which is that if you are a white American, you probably can, like I did earlier and like you just did, Seth. Well, I'm Italian-American. I'm Irish-American. I have a little bit of Dutch in me. I go to Italian pride festivals. I got a scholarship from the Italian-American Society. <laughs> You know, we, we have ties to our heritage because that was never something that was stripped from us. 
Whereas chances are, if you're an African-American in the U.S. who can, can trace their family back to antebellum slavery, what you're going to have is you're going to have my parent. you know, I, I have an ancestor that was a slave. Well, where were they from in Africa or the Caribbean? Meh. Who knows? Which is why there's been, I think, such a resurgence of people doing sort of DNA testing to try to test to see where it is that they are from initially. So it's not like you're going to have sort of a Ghanaian American celebration center for people who have been in the U.S. since transatlantic slavery, because being able to trace your family back that, that far is so very rare and uncommon. You can have certainly modern or sort of more modern, you know, post-Civil War immigrants who can who can trace their families back, but not sort of the vast majority of African Americans in the U.S. Well, and the concept of where your biology is drawn from it is an issue in Orphan Black. It's an issue for Felix, which is mm-hmm. uh, Sarah's brother and a fascinating character. Any comments on Felix? I, I just absolutely love Felix. I think it's wonderful that with Felix, not only do you get sort of depictions of a sex worker, of someone who doesn't follow strict gender binaries, someone who identifies as a member of the queer community. He's just fantastic. I love him. He's a fantastic brother, sister, and I think he's great. I just, I love the way he's presented, and he's played wonderfully. He has a phenomenal actor behind him um, who I think actually keeps up. Yeah, and, and to me, like when I think of his character, the prime identity that's, that comes across to me is a loving brother and stepson, and, and, and then the step doesn't even matter. It's that he's, yeah. a, he's a family member who cares about his family, which is a mix of people and clones he's that's what stands someone, out to me he's someone who comes across as a genuinely wonderful and kind human being too yeah so you know shout out just, to the writers for making the the characters very human except for the ones who are really beat you know mean yeah <laughs> but even the ones that are that are really kind of evil and mean you you get their justification for for why why they think it's a good idea yeah, but you can also see the contrast. The The people at uh, Neolution and these organizations, uh, there, there's a clinicalness to, it, to this, to, and these are it, you know, seeing the clones as it's, to we're doing this for science and advancement and our own gain, and they're pretty honest about it. So it's very clinical compared to the, the family orientation of the main characters. But uh, back to biology. So you have all these uh, embryos that are, you know, where they're, where they're birthed through, through through what become their stepmothers. Is that the correct term? I, I guess. Yeah, I'm trying to be sensitive talking about parenting, being that you know, a I'm not a parent, and b uh, there's just so much to parenting and adoption and everything. So if I say anything in an offensive way, I apologize. But uh, that you have all these clones who may not know, well, really don't know where the biology comes from. And we don't even know whether their parents were honest about that. It seems like lots of them were of the one of the clone club. And a lot of, and a lot of them pre clone club, not knowing that they were clones themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, do they have a connection to their past if they don't know their biology? And then it gets back to you, how much does biology matter? And again, the filter here is what makes you human and what makes you of equal value as a human. Because if we don't value people as humans, and in today's you know debate within the U.S., if we view the left or the right as subhuman, as it, the world would be better off if these people weren't around... It's a different form of the same thing. Like, we can't look at people as less human. And yes, I am a, I do have a degree in international human rights now, but that's because <laughs> I believe that we have to value people as human. That doesn't mean we have to 
you know, give everybody, you know, give everybody a million dollars or take care of everybody. That's not the point. It's we have to view everyone as human and not have all these categories of, oh, that person is a criminal, therefore they're worthless. That person has changed their body, therefore they're worthless. Those are things we have to fight against, especially if we are to stop extreme forms of human exploitation like human trafficking. I couldn't I couldn't have said it better myself, Seth. That's awesome. And that's and that's kind of again like what we talk about in this. Why why do we care about this? Because we care about the rights of all humans to live and be safe and be happy uh, or, or to pursue happiness at least. And when we say all humans, we do mean all humans, even in, in my case, even if they're cloned humans. I mean, at some point I expect that we'll have cloned humans. It just seems to be the way things go. Assuming we don't do something drastic humanity wise. As we progress with uh, ways of modifying human beings, which also, again, is part of the themes of the show, and think about how we're going to value people. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts? Watch the show? Watch the show. People are not things that can be bought and sold, even if they are genetically modified. And in addition to that, I think kind of what, what I would kind of want to end on is what I think the show points out overwhelmingly is that there is sort of this this core of humanity and goodness that exists in people, whether they were created sort of completely organically in a womb or they were created via modification and then placed in a womb. You know, people people are people and love one another and take care of one another and form families regardless of sort of scientific intent and yeah people people are not medical experiments i think is sort of the final thing because we do see in human trafficking today sort of a continuation of this sort of idea of you know when we have people who are trafficked not so much into sex slavery but to be forced brides for the creation of children you know you're being trafficked basically to be a womb there is, under human trafficking law, provisions for organ trafficking, where we see people who are trafficked for the purposes of having organs removed. It's it's just insane that, that these are things that continue. So I think it's important to remember that these things still happen, and they're here. And Orphan Black is currently uh, on Amazon Prime seasons one through four and the other season is available for purchase and may soon be on amazon prime if you would like to watch it and not pay extra although i think it's worth paying extra for i have myself all right have a good week everyone watch some sci-fi we love you all be happy do what you can to help others out all right bye bye This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.